0: there you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith and you can review our schedule of upcoming events we hope you can join us in person good evening welcome to the institute if everybody could please stand for the opening blessing by father sheer
1: this evening i'd like to lead us in just a short little novena to our lady of Fatiman. so If our response to the novena lines could all be, Our Lady of Victory, pray for us. Our Lady of Victory, pray for us each line. So let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Our Lady of Fatima, pray for our dear country. Our Lady Lady of Victory, pray for us. us. Our Lady of Fatima, sanctify our clergy. Our Lady of Victory, pray for us. Our Lady of Fatima, make our Catholics more fervent. Our Lady of Fatima, guide and inspire those who govern us. Our Lady of of Fatima, cure the sick who confide in Thee. Our Lady of of Fatima, help those who invoke Your aid. Our Lady of of Fatima, deliver us from all dangers. Our Our Lady of Fatima, help us to resist temptation. Our Lady of Fatima, obtain for us all that we lovingly ask of Thee. Our Lady of, victory, pray us. Our Lady of Fatima, help those who are dear to us. Our Lady of victory, pray to us. Our Lady of Fatima, bring back to the right road our erring brothers. Our Lady, victory, our Lady of Fatima, give us back our ancient fervor. Our Lady, of victory, pray us. our Lady of Fatima, obtain for us pardon of our manifold sins and offenses. Our Lady of Fatima, bring all peoples to the illumination of your Son, the light of the world. Our Lady of victory, pray for us. O Mary, conceived without sin, pray for us, Christ, Christ. Immaculate Heart of Mary, pray for us now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who in thy goodness has caused the light of the Gospel to shine in our lives, extend thy boundless mercy, we beseech thee to the nations of the world that still walk in darkness. Enlighten the Muslims, world leaders, and indeed the leaders of our republic, with the knowledge of your glorious truth. And grant that the gospel of salvation may be known through all the world, that the hearts of all peoples may be turned toward you, through Jesus Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you so much, Father.
2: My
0: name is Melanie Baker. I'm the Associate Director of the Institute of Catholic Culture. Deacon Sabatino is actually away on Institute business, so I'm filling in for him tonight. And I'm so delighted to welcome you all here. And without further ado, I'd like to welcome back Bob Riley.
2: Melanie, thank you very much. Was everyone here last week? So most of you are gluttons for punishment, but I see some fresh faces here. I'm not a Muslim, so I'm enjoying adult beverage while I address this subject. I'm going to begin the same way I did last week by reading this prayer. "O God, I ask of you a perfect faith, a sincere assurance, a reverent heart, a remembering tongue a good conduct of commendation and a true repentance. Repentance before death, rest at death, and forgiveness and mercy after death. Clemency at the reckoning, victory in paradise and escape from the fire. By your mercy, O mighty one, forgiver. Lord, increase me in knowledge and join me to the good. Unquote. Remember that prayer from last week? Said by Muslims as they circumambulate the Kaaba, the seventh time. And I just read it again to reiterate my point not to demonize Muslims. I will again be saying some very difficult things this evening, but they are not meant out of any disrespect to the many Muslims I've known and worked with or the many Muslims who strive to fulfill the aspirations in that prayer to serve the will of God as they have been given to know it. However, if you remember last week, one thing we did talk about was how Islam regards us as Christians, uh, why we are a superseded faith and what they find particularly repellent about Christianity. Do you know what today is in the Coptic church? It's Easter. As it is in the Orthodox Church. So here was a message from this past week from Abdul al-Rahman Albar, a member of the Muslim Brotherhood General Guide's Office, often referred to as the movement's Mufti. Uh, he issued a fatwa forbidding Muslims from greeting Christians on their religious holidays. Albar told the Egyptian Daily. Uh, on April 28th, that according to the Sharia, cops must not be greeted for religious ceremonies that contravene the principles of the Muslim faith. al stressed that Easter is contrary to the Muslim faith in the sense that, quote, Jesus did not die and was not crucified, but rather Allah gave him protection from the Jews and raised Jesus up to him. They, they believe in the ascension, by the way which is why we do not greet anyone for something we strongly believe is wrong. This does not contradict the right of our partners in the homeland to believe what they want or do what they want, Uh, So he's issuing a fatwa to the Muslims in Egypt not to say happy holiday or happy Easter to the Copts because Christ did not die on the cross, Uh, therefore was not raised from the dead. By the way, that's not... uh, Typical of the Muslim Brotherhood attitude, they have sent greetings in the past. The chief mufti in Egypt has sent greetings to the copts. I'm just reading that to you so you know the trend, the direction in which things are going. Now, last week we talked a little about about the theology behind the history, didn't we? Islamic theology, Christian theology and why they are antithetical to each other. So today let's talk about some history more recent history, and then the Arab Spring. What happened to it? Who could not wish it well? Who could not hope for these people who have been under the heel of military and other authoritarian dictatorships and secret police regimes for decades and decades and decades? Whose heart does not immediately go out to the crowds in the street who are trying to what we think is seize freedom for themselves for the first time in their lives and not wish them to succeed in this endeavor. We all do. And it's the most natural thing in the world for an American to wish that people everywhere could assume the blessings of self-rule and liberty. So our natural inclination is to hope that they succeed. There's, in addition to this, an understanding of human nature on our part that we get from not only our faith, but from our founders, from our Declaration of Independence, that we're endowed with these inalienable rights, and that it's more or less natural for us to assume them. One of the recent presidents who made such a point of this, and of course based a good deal of his foreign policy, including in the Middle East on it, was George W. Bush and it was about a week ago, his library down in Texas was dedicated and he repeated his same point about this. I'm going to read something he said toward the end of his second term, but it's a paraphrase of what he just said last week. Quote, I do believe that freedom is universal, and if just given a chance, people will live in, will self-govern and live in a peaceful, free society. So if they're not living in a free society and self-governing, it's because some constraints have been put on them, right? And all you have to do is lift those constraints and they will assume those blessings of self-government. Do you agree with that? (laughs) Perhaps because of the last 10 years' experience of which I was a part. Well, let's talk about our general attitude toward the Middle East. It was not an area of tremendous interest to the United States uh, in most of its history except for religious and cultural reasons, obviously the birthplace of Christianity. But uh, there was not an embassy uh, from a Muslim country in Washington until the late 19th century And only in the early 20th century did the State Department uh, create a Department for Middle Eastern Affairs. It simply wasn't an area of pressing concern for us. It wasn't considered a national strategic concern for the United States. Until, guess what? Oil. It became a strategic concern for us because of the energy supplies. Now, we're not the only ones who believe that people will assume the blessings of self-government and liberty once the constraints are lifted from them. This was generally shared by the British and others who thought that the Arabs in the Middle East had been under the boot of the Ottoman Empire for so many centuries and oppressed by the Ottomans. Ottoman imperialism was the, was the constraint that kept the Arabs from assuming the blessings of self-government. So the objective was to lift the Ottoman boot from these people. And the Europeans began interfering in the Ottoman Empire as it became the sick man of Europe in the late 19th century and insisting on certain reforms there, uh, not simply for the Arabs, but obviously for their co-religionists. Don't persecute Christians and uh, lift the Dimi laws in the Ottoman Empire. And these were done in what were called the Tanzimat reforms. Now, The idea that if the boot of the Ottomans could be removed uh, from the Arabs was was of course the consequence of World War I. Uh, The British Empire offered the Sultan a very good deal. Stay out of it and we'll guarantee the integrity of the Ottoman Empire. Don't enter the war on the side of Imperial Germany and we'll guarantee your integrity. The young Turks and the Sultan made a fatally bad mistake became belligerents in the war, and of course, were on the losing side, which ended in the utter collapse of the Ottoman Empire. And I would suggest to you today that we are still living very vividly with the consequences of that collapse day by day today. What is happening in Syria today is a consequence of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Now, what happened after that? The European powers moved in and were given uh, League of Nations mandates to rule France and Syria, uh, Great Britain in Iraq, uh, etc. So the Europeans replaced the Ottomans as the imperial power in the Middle East, and so our understanding of the situation changed a bit. They weren't assuming the blessings of self government because of the Ottoman imperialists, but because of the European imperialists. And if only those constraints could be lifted, then the Arabs will assume the blessings of self-government. And therefore, the United States foreign policy was explicitly anti-imperial in the Middle East. And guess what? That's when we were extremely popular there. When you hear this question, well, how come they don't love us over there anymore? It goes back to the time in which they did love us because we were against the... European powers occupying them. And so we pressured the British and the French to leave. Hugely decisive moment in 1956 during the Suez crisis when the, the Israelis and the Europeans seized, took back rather, took back the, the Suez Canal from Nasser. And what did President Eisenhower do? He told them to get out, to give it to the Egyptians and leave. We completely undercut our allies. Uh, as a consequence of which, of course, we were very popular. So America stands behind freedom for the Arab nations. And so guess what? The French and the British did leave. And then it became our responsibility to undertake the task that principally the British had, which was to secure the energy supplies from the Middle East so that they did not fall under the domain of a power hostile to the United States or our allies. But we thought once now that these, they are free, they will assume the blessings of self-government. And guess what we discovered? We discovered that actually the problems in the Middle East were not the consequence of imperial rule, but were indigenous to the area. Except now they were our problems. And our popularity began to plummet and has never recovered. Recall throughout this period, by the way, that since President Truman, it was the official national security policy of the United States that no power outside of the Middle East would be allowed to gain hegemony over the oil supplies of the Middle East. And if they attempted to do so, that would be a causeus belli for the United States. Uh, at whom was this policy directed? Well, at the time, most obviously to the Soviet Union. President Jimmy Carter, not what you'd think is one of the really hardcore foreign policy presidents, reiterated this policy after the Soviets moved into Afghanistan because it looked like a move toward the Middle Eastern oil supplies. And he said explicitly, once again, if a foreign power gains control or attempts to gain control, the United States will go to war. Soviet Union disappeared. But nonetheless, we found that a local power was going to attempt uh, hegemony over vital Middle Eastern oil supplies for his own diluted uh, ba- purposes of reconstituting a Babylonian empire, and that, of course, was Saddam Hussein when he invaded Kuwait and made, made a feint, more than a feint, towards Saudi Arabia uh, the lesson of which for the local oil supplying countries was that I now, I now will tell you what to do. The United States and indeed our European allies and others couldn't allow this. And so we have Gulf War I. The problem with Gulf War One is that it, it never finished. Uh, Saddam Hussein was still in office after it. And 10 years later, he was still in violation of almost every one of the terms of the ceasefire, and of course of all the UN resolutions, making him accountable for his depredations in Kuwait and restorations and uh, accounting for the uh, weapons of mass destruction that he himself had already admitted he had. It's not something anyone made up. So 10 years later, the United States goes back in in Operation Iraqi Freedom uh, to finally remove him, to finally finish the first Gulf War. People, who I read a lot of critiques. I mean, obviously, this didn't go well. We don't need to be, go over that. But, but the people who, who say this was a war of choice and who fixate on Operation Iraqi Freedom without talking about the first Gulf War missed the whole picture. It's like talking about World War II without referring to World War I and how it ended, which put down the roots for World War II, more or less inevitably so. In the case of the two Gulf Wars, that's even more true, or even truer. Uh, So guess what? Ottoman imperialists gone, European imperialists gone, the local hegemon, Saddam Hussein is gone. So what do we expect to bubble up in Iraq? The blessings of self-rule and liberty, right? kind of a preemptive Arab Spring, if you would. That's what we thought. That's what President Bush thought. And to a certain degree, I thought it, too. I was there, living in Saddam's uh, Republican palace. I can't tell you how bizarre that was. (laughs) Now, so this idea that people naturally want to be free led us to blame ourselves for the fact that they weren't free in the Middle East. We could no longer blame the Ottomans or the British and the French, so we blamed ourselves. So now we're there to help make you free. So now we're not going to support those Arab autocracies and military dictatorships. We are going to support democracies. And soon thereafter, of course, we saw what looked like a Velvet Revolution in Lebanon. And then, more recently, The so-called Arab Spring in Tunisia, when that vendor ignited himself after being uh, mistreated by the police and the Tunisians rise up and then the Egyptians rise up and the Libyans rise up, now the Syrians have risen up. And um, what has been the result of this and why hasn't it resulted in uh, fulfilling our expectations of self-rule and the blessings of liberty? Well, one Egyptian... Democrat, Tariq Hagee, very, very successful businessman and uh, intellectual in Egypt, had this to say. What happened in Tunisia and Egypt and what is now happening in many Arab countries cannot properly be understood except through the intellectual history of the Arab-speaking societies over the last 14 centuries. So that's what I'm going to talk about next. No, we did that. (laughs) We can't go over the intellectual history of the last 14 centuries. But for those of you who were here last week, I did give you a little encapsulation of that, didn't I? About the struggle over the status of reason and its relationship to revelation. And the Mutazilites, the rational theologians who said God is uh, reason and justice, they were known as the people of God's rationality and justice. Because God gave us reason to come to know him. He gave us the order of creation, which is rational, through which to learn of him. Uh, He gave us freedom through which to choose the good, which we can come to know through our reason. And justice in that he will reward the good and he'll punish the evil. He's just. So they were the people of God's rationality and justice opposed by the Asherites, who believed, no, no, God is pure will and power. He has nothing to do with reason. Uh, He is the first and only cause of every act. There are no secondary causes. There, There are no natural laws. God does everything himself. For God to be omnipotent, you can't be so much as potent, like moving my hand. God's doing that. I'm not. God put in my mind the thought of moving my hand, and then... God moved my hand for me. I didn't do it. He did. And also, how presumptuous of anyone to say that God must reward the good and punish the evil. He can't do No one can say he must do that. God can do anything he wants. And if God decides to punish those who have obeyed him and reward those who have disobeyed him, uh, no one can gainsay that. God is above any category of thought, any idea of justice. He's pure will and power, and whatever he says goes. And that, as I explained to you, was the, the, um, the school of thought that predominated, that one within Sunni Islam, that became the majority theological school within Sunni Islam, most particularly in the Middle East, and remains so today, which will explain a lot of the dysfunctional behavior that can be observed there Um, For instance, now, how many of you have heard of Bernard Lewis, the great scholar of the Middle East? Right, Bernard Lewis, right at the beginning of the stirrings for the Arab Spring, said watch out. If you move immediately to national elections in any of these countries, this will be the Weimar moment. The Weimar moment, what did he mean? He was talking about Weimar Germany the republic that was created in Germany after uh, the, the removal of the Kaiser and the loss of World War I, uh, through which, in elections, the Nazi party in 1933 won a plurality that put Hitler in power. So when Bernard Lewis said that, that if you have elections, early elections in any of these countries, this will be the Weimar moment, don't expect anything better of this than what occurred in Germany which gave the world the Nazis at that time. That's that's a pretty grave alarm, a pretty serious uh, warning. Was it realistic? It's several years since he said that. Uh, As we know, undissuaded, these countries, particularly Egypt, uh, Libya, uh, Tunisia, moved to early elections, and so the results of these elections are in. And we know how the campaigns were conducted and we know who won. And the people who won were the Islamists. Preview, preview to that. While President Bush was still in office, we encouraged uh, elections in the Palestinian Authority. And guess who wins in Gaza? Hamas, terrorist group, wins the election. That was in 2007. How many elections do you think there have been in Gaza since then? (laughs) Yes, zero. Uh, Guess where the, the people are who ran against them in that election in 2007? They're in jail. They're still there. So as Bernard Lewis and others warned, and we already had the example of Gaza before us, one election, one time. Now, here's the thing about this attitude we have ingrained in us that people will naturally assume the blessings of self-government and liberty as soon as constraints are removed. Because we believe in these inalienable rights. We believe we're made in the image and likeness of God. The problem with all this is those inalienable rights can only be assumed where they're recognized. And if you're dealing with a culture in which there is no such thing as inalienable rights, or that doesn't accept and finds blasphemous the notion that you're made in the image and likeness of God, guess what? There are no culture, There's no undergirding in the culture to support this uh, assumption of, of self-government and liberty. Let me give you some examples from the campaign in Egypt, for instance. It shocked everyone, but well, the Muslim Brotherhood was gonna win, everybody knew that. But the Al-Nur party and some of the Salafists did extremely well, taking 20, 25% of the vote, making for an overwhelming Islamist victory, you know, 70, 77%. Um, a spokesman for the Noor party, the light party in Egypt, said that um, he considers God's law to be only lo- the only law. That's, isn't that an interesting attitude for a legislator? It certainly lightens up on your responsibilities, doesn't it? <laughs> And remember last week I gave you the principle of Islamic jurisprudence, that reason is not a legislator, that when you're trying to arrive at the goodness or evil of anything you're considering doing, your reason can't tell you anything about that. It's only revelation, it's only Islamic Sharia jurisprudence that can tell you. So if reason is not a legislator, why have legislatures? And so here we hear from the al-Nur spokesman Useri Hamad, you know, what's left to legislate? Quote, in the land of Islam, I can't let people decide what is permissible or what is prohibited. It is God who gives the answers as to what is right and what is wrong. That, that, uh, statements like this led me to formulate my own theory of Islamic democracy. It's one God, one vote, one time. And he's already voted. So the legislature can, you know, go back to their home districts and talk to their constituents. Um, Here is another um, Sheikh Sahat, another leader of the Salafis. Again, they came in second after the Brotherhood. Quote, I want to say citizenship restricted by Islamic Sharia, freedom restricted by Islamic Sharia, equality restricted by Islamic Sharia. Sharia is obligatory, not just principles, freedom and justice and all that. Um... Now, the, the, the problem can become um, sort of immediately clear by simply asking yourself this question, particularly those of you who have some experience in the Middle East. How many people in Egypt do you suppose, accept the principle, our founding principle, the founding principle of any democratic constitutional regime, that all people are created equal? The Coptics, they're not equal, are they? would would a, would a Muslim in Egypt ever say a Copt is equal to him? No. Well, how about you know any Muslim to any non-Muslim? Are there any non-Muslim equal to a Muslim? No. How about a woman to a man? No. So all people aren't created equal. So the fundamental founding principle of democratic rule is is absent. Why is it absent? Well, he told us Islamic Sharia Now, should I repeat what Sharia is in case I didn't go over it? Sharia is Islamic jurisprudence derived from the two sources of revelation, the Quran and the Hadith, of which there are scores and scores of thousands, which are the reports of the deeds and actions of Muhammad, which become normative. The Sharia are the the rulings drawing upon these basis of revelation that codify five categories of human behavior. So everything you can think of doing or have done is in one of those five categories, and there is a ruling on it. And on one side, you know, it's haram forbidden, halal uh, permitted, uh, and and therefore you won't hear Muslims saying this is good uh, or this is bad. The way they'll say it's prohibited or it's permitted. They won't use the language of moral philosophy because there is no moral philosophy in Islam. It's all revelation. I mean, they have a sense of good and evil, but it's only from revelation, not from, from reason at all. Um, this leads to, to other problems. Well, of course, in Arabic, there was no, there was no word for citizen uh, or democracy uh, or conscience. I mean there's a word for all of these in Arabic today and the word for conscience is damir and they understand that to be conscience but that's not the original meaning of the word. Now, uh, why wouldn't there have been a word for conscience and then how can you exercise the freedom of something for which you don't even have a word as in freedom of conscience? Once again, it's a result of the delegitimization of reason by the Ashurites. Uh and it's not only the Asherites. it's for instance in Saudi Arabia, the, the Hanbali school of Islamic jurisprudence rules in Saudi Arabia, and they think the Asherites were even uh, out of order because they, use, they used reason to discredit reason. They shouldn't have even used reason for that. So you'll see on websites there, abandoned reason, and submit to the text. The greatest uh, Asherite, Muhammad al-Ghazali, died in 1111. He is the one who delivered the coup de grace on philosophy in the Islamic world and discredited reason uh, more or less definitively. He said, once you have arrived at the truth of the prophet, reason must cease to operate. There's no, there's no role for reason there. Since reason cannot apprehend reality and no good and evil, it has no integrity. So how could you trust reason to make important choices such as how you're going to behave, whether it's good or bad, much less choose a religion, right? Uh-uh. Reason has no status, it has no integrity. And we made the contrast last week that within Christianity you are expected Make an act of faith as a rational decision, not against your reason. no, no such notion could possibly arise in this in this form of islam um, well that 's a problem. Uh, what foundation might you have then for freedom of speech, which indeed is part of freedom of conscience isn 't it and and freedom of assembly and these these other freedoms that directly relate uh, to the integrity of your reason and the inviolability of your person uh, as you are a person in the image and likeness of God, which as we discussed last week is, is a blasphemy in Islam. So the culture was not prepared for a wholesale change of this nature. Bernard Lewis said if you're going in this direction, you, you have to start at the, the local level with a village council or something. Or as uh, one Middle Eastern scholar said, you know, uh, start with dog catcher. You know, first find out how to select the dog catcher and then build up slowly over a long period of time until this can be inculcated in your culture. But it can never be inculcated in your culture unless you have, you, you can accept within your religion the foundational ideas of democratic constitutional rule. If they're haram, if they're prohibited in your religion, that's going to be a very long uh, road to hoe. So who were the possible beneficiaries of the Arab Spring? Not the Twitter guys in Tahrir Square. Who were the only organized forces in all of these countries that could possibly have benefited from the overthrow of the authoritarian regimes there? Sorry, jihadists. Jihadist. So you, yeah, okay. Number one, the Islamists, who had worked through the mosques, uh, even during these periods of repression, they used the mosques to protect themselves, and uh, were able to monopolize, in some places, monopolize the networks through the mosques, the network of mosques and religious institutions, and of course, they became known as the only viable opposition to the autocracies or authoritarian regimes ruling over them. As that's like President Mubarak kept warning, kept warning Bush and others, hey, you want to get rid of me, you're going to get the Muslim Brotherhood. And our response is, well, that's because you didn't allow civil society to flourish. And there's some truth to that. But there's a lot more truth to his warning, which was ignored. So the first organized group was the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, the Muslim Brotherhood has been around for a long time. It was created in 1928 in Egypt by Hassan al-Banna. Why? What, why was Hassan al-Banna impelled to create this Islamist organization? Anybody have any idea? It, well, the colonial power, that's close. He, it was because of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the abolition of the caliphate. I mean, if, if the papacy were abandoned uh, Tomorrow, you'd probably be impelled to do something, call the bishop or do you know, take some form of action because this center of meaning and organization in your life, in our lives, would, would be gone. And this was every bit as dramatic for many Muslims. All of a sudden, the caliphate, gone, abolished by this devil, Ataturk, who is demonized to this day for having done that. And there was great perturbation in the Islamic world, particularly, by the way, in, in India and in places in the Middle East, what are we gonna do? So Hassan Obama formed this organization and said, well, what we're gonna do is restore it. We'll restore the caliphate and we will institute Islamic rule, which means rule of the Sharia, that the state will enforce uh, all these judgments about the five categories of types of acts and everyone will have to obey these things. So they had two objectives, restore the caliphate and um, impose Sharia, here is the uh, slogan or the motto of the Muslim Brotherhood. Allah is our objective. The prophet is our leader. The Quran is our law. Jihad is our way. Dying in the way of Allah is our highest hope. Uh, or the shorter slogan is, is very simple. It's Islam, is what's the problem? Islam is the answer. Name any problem and the answer, Islam is the answer. Now, when James Clapper, the national director of intelligence, appeared before a congressional committee, uh, he made the remark that uh, the Muslim Brotherhood was largely secular. (laughs) And he was allowed to return to his office and continue with his duties. I mean, come on, 84 years of activity and doctrine and uh, they're just, there's no way around the nature of the Muslim Brotherhood. Please, 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 please. The current ideological leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, more or less kind of their chief mufti, not officially, but in fact, is Yusuf al-Qaradawi. Uh, let me give you a taste of the way this man speaks. Quote, Islam is a comprehensive school of thought, a creed, an ideology, and cannot be completely satisfied but by completely controlling society and directing all aspects of life from how to enter the toilet to the construction of the state." Unquote. Uh, the deputy guide of the brotherhood who was going to be their presidential candidate but there was a legal impropriety that didn't allow him, Karate al-Shatir, quote, the mission is clear, restoring Islam and its all-encompassing conception, subjugating people to God, instituting the religion of God, the Islamization of life, empowering of God's religion, establishing the nada of the ummah, the renaissance of the Islamic people, on the basis of Islam. How about change? There are some people here who have worked in the State Department. I have, too, on occasion. I wasn't encouraged to stay. (laughs) But... This is a familiar refrain. Well, they say that, but now they have power. And once they have to exercise the responsibilities of power, guess what? They're going to change. They're going to become more realistic, just like every totalitarian group has, right? The Nazis, the communists. They all modified, mellowed out. No? Well, if we want to hear al Shatir here again um, is addressing this question. And he said... No one can come and say, let's change the overall mission. No one can say, forget about obedience, discipline and structures. It takes eight years to become a full Muslim Brotherhood. All of these constants that represent the fundamental framework of our method, the method of the Muslim Brotherhood, it is not open for developing or change, unquote. Um, Well, guess what? We now have the experience of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt at the, at the controls, and have they changed? No, they've, they've used every opportunity. First of all, they, they, they lied uh, constantly. They said they weren't going to put up uh, candidates for all of the legislative districts, and then they did. They said they weren't going to put up a candidate for president, and then they did, et etc. et cetera until they're in a position to come close to consolidating absolute power in Egypt uh, with the result that just one kind of tyranny is being replaced by another except a more absolute one because the Brotherhood is a totalitarian organization, uh, not an authoritarian one. I mean, I have plenty of statements from them describing uh, the character of the regime they wish to see. Hassan al-Banna said, well, it could be... Something like the Soviet Union, that would be our ideal. And that in an Islamic state, there will be no room for privacy. Uh, and as the chief ideologue said, only the just will have rights. It's like something out of Robespierre and the French Revolution. Um, now, I, w- I want also just to step back for a minute and make clear as to why this is happening and why they're getting away with it, even though there are, as you can tell from the demonstrations in the street, many people who don't want to live in an Islamic totalitarian state. And that is because of the Muslim teaching that sovereignty only resides in God. That's how I came up with my my definition, one God, one vote, one time. The, the vote was the Quran. And... Um, uh, so if sovereignty doesn't reside in man, what what is the basis upon which you can establish self-rule? Yeah, you know, it's it's another problem. Uh, there was a Pew poll in um, Egypt that asked people how do you agree uh, that apostasy should be a crime, that is, leaving Islam is a capital crime in Sharia. So of the Egyptians polled by Pew, how many do you think? Agreed with that. Good. Someone got very close. 84%. So 84% believe you don't have the freedom of conscience to leave Islam, and that if you do, the Sharia, all four legal schools prescribe the same punishment, death. Uh, Egypt isn't a Sharia state, so it doesn't do that. (laughs) Though if you're found to be an apostate in Egypt, you can be forced, your wife will be forced to divorce you, and there are other unpleasantries, like vigilante action, a Muslim can kill you and of course he'll, he'll get away with it. Uh, there was a book I, I was asked to write the uh, introduction to, which I did by a Muslim, uh, uh, sorry, a Swiss scholar, Lucas Wick, that just came out earlier this year on Islam and constitutionalism. And what this scholar did is examine the history of constitutionalism in the Arab world And then he examined the writings of a number of contemporary Muslim religious scholars across the whole array of opinion from the Salafists uh, whom I was talking about earlier who only want to do what Muhammad did in the Quran or the Hadith to what we would think of as reformed Muslim intellectual thinkers uh, who talk about constitutional rule and freedom. And guess what he discovered? There are, of course, differences among these people, but none of them, none of them had the foundational or embraced the foundational ideas that are necessary for democratic constitutional rule. Uh, so this is what we, we have found uh, taking place in all the countries in which this has occurred. And do you know what one interesting thing is? We don't talk about Al Qaeda uh, much anymore, but one of the principal goals of Al Qaeda was to remove the apostate regimes in the Middle East. Remove Mubarak, remove the secular regime in Tunisia, remove uh, Gaddafi in Libya. These were, this was one of the two most important objectives of Al Qaeda. And though I don't certainly think Al-Qaeda was in any way responsible for this, it nonetheless achieves one of their principal objectives. And why was this an objective of Al-Qaeda? Because, first of all, all these secularists and military rulers were apostates. But then, in the absence of them, you could begin to reconstitute the, the Ummah and the Caliphate. And, and what has also happened as a result of this is the further radicalization of Islam, the growing strength of the um, these forces which have been able to take power. As I began by telling you that we are living with the results on a daily basis of the effects of the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire, uh, All of the things that replaced the Ottoman Empire were artificial, except for ancient nations such as Egypt. The rest of them were constructed by European imperial powers, and all they did to uh, create these countries were put together uh, various uh, districts that the Ottoman Empire had used to rule them. So, you use three of them to put together Iraq, and you put a couple together in Syria, and so forth. These were never considered natural political uh, agglomerations by the people there. The Kurds weren't too happy, um, the, the Shia weren't happy. There were all kinds of tribal groups that were split by these agglomerations, and they weren't happy. Uh, so, could this new form of allegiance to a national state be uh, inculcated? by these new regimes and those people. And they've had a long time now to do that and has it been successful? And, and in these places, there's a certain sense of nationalism. I know there is among Iraqis and others, but what, what is happening are the forces of dissolution are taking these places apart. And what are they? Well, they are tribal, depending on where you're talking about in the Middle East, where, where in some places tribes are much stronger than others. Uh, which, by the way, was one of the only other benefit, possible beneficiaries of the disintegration of these regimes were the tribes. Tribes are strong in Libya, which is being sundered by them. Um, the sects, the, the Shia, the Alawites, uh, the Sunnis, these states are, uh, uh, contain combinations of these, and they've never been happy with each other as we can see in Syria today. The Sunnis are trying to kill the Alawites. The Alawites are trying to kill the Sunnis. Uh, The Muslim Brotherhood is back in Syria, uh, trying to take that over as a state with the help of the local Al Qaeda branch. Um, So these, these forces of dissolution may be taking, disintegrating the Middle East, that these nation states are not going to survive. Syria may not survive. If it doesn't survive, Lebanon is a big question. Uh, Iraq? Iraq can become a big question, too. And the whole place is going to go up for grabs. And Humpty Dumpty is not going to be able to put this one back again. It, it, it is it, it, All we can see uh, in the foreseeable future is violence uh, and strife and civil war, why? I would submit to you that the reason is because of the primacy of force in Islamic thought and theology and the denigration of reason. To have a constitutional democracy uh, where I can have a Muslim neighbor uh, and we all get along is because we would agree on the primacy of reason that we can, That first of all, it's incumbent upon us to behave reasonably because God himself is reason and expects that of us. And that uh, reason is the adjudicator in our disagreements. So we have fora in which to reach some kind of agreement, whether it's in a court or it's in a legislator or it's a marriage counselor. We have some means of... uh, A reasonable adjudication. In the absence of that and with the discrediting of reason, what's left? Force. Force is the adjudicator. And force is what is being employed to adjudicate these disputes in the Middle East. And I'm afraid I can't find any side in these disputes which makes its appeal to reason. That says let us reason together uh, because of the damage that has been done to the status of reason over all of these years. By the way, here's something good for you. (laughs) There are Muslim reformers. And I mentioned to you last week, I work with them. Uh, They wouldn't have any problem with anything I said tonight. They wouldn't think I was insulting Islam. They'd say, yeah, you nailed it. That is the problem. Now, here is from a very significant Muslim thinker. He's an Iranian and he's Shia. So he's not a Sunni. But nonetheless, what he says, obtains to the Sunni world as well. His name is... Uh, Dr. Abdul Karim Saroosh. He was one of the original supporters of the Iranian revolution in 79 and then reality impinged. So he now lives in exile. Listen to this. You need some philosophical underpinning, even theological underpinning in order to have a real democratic system. Your God cannot be a despotic God anymore. A despotic God would not be compatible with a democratic rule, with the idea of rights. So you even have to change your idea of God, unquote. There it is. This is a theological problem and needs to be solved at a theological level. Now, I'm going to find my friend Mohammed's remark. By the way, the prime minister of Turkey, I met a gentleman who served in Turkey for six years tonight. The current prime minister said, democracy is just the train we board to reach our destination. So um, Yusuf Kardawi, by the way, talking about the democratic transition in Egypt said, I think in the first five years there should be no chopping off of hands. So you have to prepare the groundwork, You see for that? Let me just stop there and... uh, Thank you so much.
0: We're going to go ahead and give Mr. Riley a chance to find that.
2: I found the quote. (laughs) So this will close out the talk nicely because I began with Bernard Lewis's warning about the Weimar moment. right. So here is an Iraqi physicist and artist. As I see, this new Islamic wave is necessary. It is similar to the necessity of Nazi party control of Germany. The Nazis caused many historical disasters, but these disasters were quite strong and hard lessons for Germans and the world. Middle Eastern societies are in need of learning such a hard lesson from these retarded parties. uh, yeah, he lives in exile. Uh, but so here is this terribly cynical, desperate remark saying, okay, the only way you can learn is by going the Weimar way to, then, okay, that's the way you'll have to learn. It's a shame. Sorry. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Mr. Reiling. Why has American foreign policy sided with the Islamists in Egypt and Syria rather than encouraging and supporting the liberals, secularists, and Christian minorities, especially when such a move is not in American interests in the long run?
2: It's very interesting. Uh, Secretary of State John Kerry was recently in Cairo, and one of the newspapers uh, drew a caricature of him uh, with a beard and the prayer bump on his forehead and and said Ikwaniya, that was his brotherhood. Brotherhood, he's a brotherhood member. Because the United States is seen as supporting the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, and therefore the real liberals who are there, as disorganized as they are, uh, see us as betraying them. And uh, we are. Now, why are we doing that? I, I can't, Melanie would scold me because it would take such a long answer. I, I lo, I've always liked Saul Bellow's sentence: "A great deal of intelligence can be invested in ignorance when the need for illusion is deep." <laughs> so they are denying the reality, and and I have to say, uh, I'm a I'm a bipartisan critic of our policy in the Middle East, but. The, the illusion was present in President Obama's famous Cairo speech. Uh, it goes back to then where he had seated in the front row members of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, which was still forbidden in Egypt at that time, which therefore meant no one from the Mubarak regime could be there for his speech. So that was the early signal. And we have followed through. If we were saying we would withhold military support that you know billion dollars a year to the Egyptian military and the F-16s and the tanks, we would, we would withhold those as a signal that we are not going to support a regime that is antithetical to our interests. But we're doing the opposite. You mentioned the uh, Twitters from Tariq Square a little while ago. Do you have any hope that the youth of the Middle East, the Arab countries, which is so numerous and by its very nature, more inquisitive, more rebellious. uh, Do you have any hope that they will look to reason, uh, look through social media, and be able to avoid the kind of thing that you mentioned at the end of your talk? Some some of them do, but on the other hand, the social media is radicalizing a lot of them as well. It's having the opposite effect. But in my work with some Muslim uh, reformers, watch that one. Um, I, I, I mentioned this uh, just uh, before we began. I have a uh, young Egyptian colleague, brilliant young man in, I don't know, mid-30s. Or, um, and we talk about these issues, and uh, I keep demonstrating the obstacles. And he gets so frustrated with me. He says, what do you want me to do, kill myself? You know, don't, I mean, I've got to have some hope. And he puts himself on the line. He's been jailed, he's been in Tahrir Square, he's been fighting for these things. So one's, one's heart goes out to them. Uh, but the prospects look very grim. Azim Tamimi, the biographer, <coughs> excuse me, of Rashid Ghanouchi, the head of the uh, Anada party in uh, Tunisia, the Muslim Brotherhood party there, made a, made a wonderful remark. He said, you know, you in the West, <laughs> you don't understand. You think that there's some kind of conflict between the secularists and the Islamists. He said the only struggle that's going on here is between who's Islamist and who's more Islamist. So while one's heart goes out to these brave young people, uh, they're not organized and in the immediate future have no prospect of success. I mean, a place like Egypt, the only thing that, could happen, which some people are calling for, is the military steps back in. But I don't think they want to. I saw on television the other night a representative from an Islamic American group say that they subscribe to the principles of American democracy. I was wondering if you think that is true, and, and what other uh, Islamic American groups uh, are there, and would that be true of them as well? It depends on the group. I mean, uh, all of them are going to say that even when they don't believe it. And the most infamous of these groups is the Council on American-Islamic Relations, CARE, which is generally known as a Muslim Brotherhood Front Group. And and they have succeeded to a large degree in monopolizing the Muslim voice in the United States as if they are the representatives. And it leaves uh, Muslims who do fit the description that you just gave, extremely frustrated. You know, why do you keep paying attention to care and not to the rest of us? Uh, and this is also a huge mistake that the Catholic Church has made in some of its dialogue with Muslims. They, they don't choose the right Muslims with whom to dialogue. Often it's innocent, they just don't know. Uh, but the, the, the pedigree of some of them are, is very iffy. Uh, Mr. Riley, you've uh, avoided mentioning the state of Israel, and uh, I would be interested in your thoughts on the Balfour Declaration, state of Israel, and how that plays into you know, what you've been talking about. Yes, thank you for the question. Well, the existence of Israel is, of course, a major irritant, uh, but not as big an irritant as we are. We are the big Satan. Israel is the little Satan. Uh, There were Crusader kingdoms in the Middle East, as you know, uh, that lasted for well over a century. Israel hasn't even existed that long, and they are absolutely convinced that they will dispatch Israel just as they did the Crusader kingdoms. What particularly offends Muslims, as I might have mentioned last week, is the offense the Jews gave uh, to Allah by changing his words, which is talked about in the fifth surah of the Quran, for which they were cursed forever. Cursed be the Jews, forever. Now, as a consequence of their having changed the words of God, it's generally understood they lost their right to the Holy Land. Which right is acknowledged in the Quran? They once had the right to the Holy Land. They changed God's word, they lost it, well, what are they doing back there? They're exercising sovereignty in the Holy Land. Not only that, but sovereignty over some Muslims who live in Israel. That's absolutely unacceptable at the level of their own revelation. Unacceptable. I mean, I avidly followed the peace process for a number of years until I finally understood the deep roots of this situation. And until there is another interpretation of Surah 5 that's generally accepted in the Muslim world. Don't bother. There, there is not going to be, uh, there be, there will be truces, but there, there won't be any uh, peace because it's, it's there, the existence of Israel is, is unacceptable to them and they will keep going until they wipe it out. Now, don't be under any illusion that if Israel weren't there, we, we would be in good shape. Uh, we wouldn't. Uh, because they 're just the little Satan and they 'd still have the big Satan to contend with, uh, as I have don 't have time to go in tonight, but they don 't like us for their for our vices for very good reason we 're polluting their world just as we 've polluted our own, but they don 't like us for our virtues either, so there, there is a an, an ancient problem there, let me say is it true that the sunnis Are people of reason and they don't follow jihad? I think you can get the tape of my talk (laughs) from last week and that's that uh, it's that's no the majority school in Sunni Islam is asherism which denies reason. And when you deny reason you give a let us say a a certain amplitude to violence in jihad. When Osama bin Laden in his tape after 9-11 quoted Uh, his Palestinian mentor, and said terrorism is an obligation in Allah's religion, Uh, that can only be true if if God is without reason, that it's okay to act unreasonably and use violence to advance your faith. So, unfortunately, what you say is not the case. Melanie, where are you? I'm here.
1: When you were talking originally about how al-Ghazali's teachings became widely accepted within Sunni Islam um, you just you mentioned that they became widely accepted but you didn't talk very much how so I'm wondering given that geopolitical boundaries generally play a role in, politi- in religious affiliation of people how would you say the widespread exception of al-Ghazali's teachings is related to the various ruling dynasties that were existent in the Islamic world during that time period
2: Melanie won't allow me to answer that question.
0: <laughs>
2: but it's a very good one. And I just will reaffirm, Al-Ghazali, for, for many, many Muslims, Al-Ghazali is considered the second greatest Muslim next only to Muhammad. And one reason why he was so successful, first of all, he, he in the early 12th century, he was continuing the Asherite school from the ninth century, so there had been several centuries for this teaching to seep in. He guaranteed its supremacy, uh, and what he did that made him very popular is he also legitimized uh, Sufism, uh, mysticism, which Sunni Islam was very skeptical about. In fact, it's still skeptical today, but to the extent to which it's been accepted is because of al-Ghazali. And that's not specific to just one geographic area. He's, it's it's throughout, he, he in fact, uh, was a, let's see, Al-Ghazali, Muhammad Al-Ghazali, was a Persian.
0: Thank you, Mr. Riley, for speaking with us this evening. Have you any comments about the Muslims strongly associated with the brotherhood in our own government?
2: Well... I, I, you know, the need for illusion is so deep. I'm not sure that their presence is decisive, but it's, it's certainly there. And in fact, I think it's, uh, it's been predominant uh, because most American politicians don't know the world of Islam at all. And when they turn to dialogue or embrace their fellow American citizens in the Muslim faith, they turn to these organizations which have monopolized the scene. Uh, unfortunately, they've been very clever at doing that. And they, they use deception to do it, yeah, They're, they're very good at uh, saying one thing to themselves and one thing in Arabic and another thing in English. So, yes, they're, they're influential to the point that they've monopolized the, the public arena. Absolutely. What would you say is the agenda and the, the long-range goals of the Council for American Islamic Relations and, and other groups inside the United States, do they have an agenda for inside the US too? Converting all of us, for instance? Well, for the, you know, the flag of Islam to fly over the, the White House to be part of the Caliphate, if you want to, it sounds extreme, but they are uh, known as the Muslim Brotherhood Front and they have the agenda of the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, for instance, where do you think um, President Morsi of Egypt, was recruited to the Muslim Brotherhood. As I said, becoming a Muslim Brother, it's like becoming a Jesuit, you know, it's eight, 10 years of hard cadre, discipline, and indoctrination. Where, did, where do you think Morsi, Egyptian, was recruited to the Muslim Brotherhood? Yeah, in Southern California when he was an engineering student. So the Brotherhood was already here in, in that position to influence him uh, that, that far ago. So yeah, it's, it's a problem. You didn't mention anything about
0: Saudi Arabia, and what, what would you, you like me the, to say? What, <laughs> <laughs> what type of role you think they might play in the
2: region? Um, but you know, the question about the, the, the Muslim Brotherhood, don't mistake them with the majority of Muslims living in this country. Thank heavens, the American dream still works, and the vast majority of Muslims in this country have been completely assimilated to American life. I went with a good number of them because they were native Iraqis back you know, to Iraq in 2003. And believe me, they are extremely fine people and great American citizens. Now, Saudi Arabia, I didn't quite catch the second part of your question, but if you want me to... Saudi Arabia... Uh, the role they might play in the region. Well, they are the principal bulwark against uh, the spread of the Iranian Revolution, but they are themselves the principal progenitor of the Wahhabi ideology, which is possibly the most backward, recidivist, reactionary, anti-rational form of Islam there is. And thanks to petrodollars, they have been able to take over the mosques in many parts of the United States and elsewhere. Uh, They fund, they they build the mosques. They bring the imams to Saudi Arabia and preach to uh, educate them in the Wahhabi ideology. Uh, It's the surrender your reason and submit to the text school of Islam dominated by Ibn Hanbal, who was known never to have eaten a watermelon because there's no instance of Muhammad eating a watermelon. So um, Saudi Arabia is a huge problem. By the way, I think because of this, um, the, all of the turmoil, the sooner we develop our own energy resources and are not dependent on the Middle East, uh, the, 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 I think the sanest thing for us to do would be to be as, as uh, least involved as we can and cordon off the area to sort of limit the damage from the fratricidal fighting that's going to continue in that part of the world for some time.
0: Thank you so much, Mr. Reiter. Thank
2: you very much, appreciate it.
0: We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture.